Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air with my co-hosts, Kayla Solomon and Dominique Simone Levine. Good morning, ladies. How are you this morning? Good. Good morning. Good morning. So, Dominique, you have a topic in mind of what we're going to discuss today. Can you open it up for us? Sure. I'd like to take our attention away a little bit from being a parent of a typically an adult child with a substance use disorder and turn to being the intimate partner of someone with a substance use disorder. We started in the last podcast talking about oftentimes what these partners are called or is codependent, that somehow they're too enmeshed, right? And applying craft to their situation to the intimate partner situation. Let's say it's a it's a woman who comes to us and her female partner is uh, abusing cocaine on weekends. And I just wonder if we can tease apart some of the, the similarities of craft as it is applied from parent to child, as we want now to see it applied from the intimate partner to another intimate partner. Was it Laird that said codependents are like two souls colliding, which doesn't sound so bad, except I think they don't unstick, right? Or how would we start to talk about the stance that the non-substance using partner should begin to try and take in the face of a loved one, an intimate loved one who is using cocaine on the weekends? So one of the things that I, I think about a lot is, and, and I'm an, a relationship therapist, I think a lot about differentiation and individuation, which basically means that you have a separate self from your loved one, from your partner, that you are a completely individual human being that has your own life that actually is connected with your partner, but it's not merged with your partner. And I have this I wish you could see this, but I have a way of, of looking at it visually. So there's three different models of relationship. There's the parallel play, which is basically looks like railroad checks, where two people are together, but they have very separate lives. They're next to each other. They live with each other, but they're not really connecting in any way. And that's a very lonely position. Then there's the other model, which is the codependency enmeshed model, which is that it's basically where it almost looks like if you put both people together, it's one line. It's just a thicker line because they're so enmeshed. You can't tell them it's the people, the couples that they wind up becoming one name so that their lives are so entwined that it's very hard to tell them apart. And then there's the healthy model, which to me looks like a DNA strand. Um, So basically it's you're, you're working parallel and then you have two separate lives and then you come together for connection and then you go apart and go live your life and come back again together for connection. So you're living your own life and you come back in these special moments to connect. 
I actually think that is the craft model because I feel like the craft model is all about connection. And if you're two on top of the other person, there is no connection. There's just emerging. So it's hard to differentiate. And a lot of times, if you're looking at the issue of codependency, is it's too much connection so that even when you're not with that person, you're thinking about them, you're worrying about them, you're you're trying to prevent horrible things from happening. So their life is so much on your in your mind that you wind up don't not having enough time or space to take care of yourself or have your own life. That's part of the codependency. And again, if you look at the addictive model, it's obsession and compulsion. So the obsession is the the repetitive thinking that you're doing and the worrying is obsession in this case. You know, you could look at the addiction as the drug and people are thinking about the drug, but I see it relationally as well. If you're obsessively thinking about how that person's doing, what's going on with them, how can I make sure no, no bad thing happens? How do I protect them from horrible things? that becomes its own form of obsession. And then the compulsion is the physical things, the things that you're doing in real time, that's about them. Like how are you preventing bad things from happening or taking care of them more than they're taking care of themselves. The other thing that I would add to this is if you're thinking more about them than yourself, then that's a sign that you're in that kind of codependent reality. Again, the way to get out of this, the craft model is to back up, is to give space. I cannot say enough about space because also how do you not get resentful if you are in a relationship with somebody who is taking up that much time and space and is so high need that even if they're not asking you for things, you are focused on them. And ultimately what happens is you're not focused on yourself. So you lose your identity in the relationship. And that's that's the dynamic that I think is very, very unhealthy. Something kind of sparked a thought in me with when you said when someone's asking you for something and I see the love spouse partner relationship as actually being able to utilize craft. I don't want to say easier, but it's much easier to talk to someone who's in that type of a relationship and tell them that you're in a relationship where you have the right to expect and ask your partner to contribute to the relationship just as much as you are. You're trying to meet their needs and letting them not meet your needs in the relationship. And so utilizing craft is, for me, it's much easier to talk to someone in that type of a love relationship, you know, a spouse, a partner, to tell them that you have the right now to use these communication skills to ask for whatever it is you need in that relationship. You want to do it in a positive way. You want to, you know, you want to follow all of the skills that you've learned to communicate, but you do have the right to ask for that because this is more it's more the relationship is more on a level playing field versus when we often talk about, you know, mother with or father with a with an adult son or daughter. The line is a little bit more blurred, but it's not in a love relationship. And almost always being able to talk to someone in that kind of a situation, pointing it out through craft 
that no, you have you have the right to ask for your needs to be met as well within this relationship. And that's okay. And I think that's a that's like a huge benefit of using craft. It makes it, I don't want to say easier because it's still incredibly difficult, but I've seen like the light dawn on a partner's mind that, oh my gosh, I've been fulfilling all of their needs, or I've been trying to do all of this for them. And I'm not asking for things for myself. And I have the right to do that in this relationship. It's very interesting because the non-affected person in the relationship, first, Kayla says, back up. That is the direction you want to move because you're too intertwined. And then you're saying, Lori, you have a right to ask for some space, but you're oftentimes so busy trying to keep your partner from falling apart or getting in trouble or having dangerous moments or anything else that you haven't been willing to ask You've seen yourself as secondary to the problem at hand and your relationship will get lost, will be lost if you can't make, fix, protect, save your partner from herself, let's say. I perceive and correct me if I'm wrong, Kayla, but my understanding of what Kayla is saying is it's back away from trying to manage the illness and the difficulties your partner is going through, but not disconnect. And the not disconnecting is also being able to say something like, I know that it's a difficult time that we're going through right now, but what I'm going to need is for us to maybe go to counseling together to learn how to communicate with one another. Yeah. And I think what codependency does is it puts the other person's needs first. So whatever your perception is of their dynamic, whether you think it's a, an illness or you think that there's something wrong with them, what we wind up doing is stepping in and trying to make sure that that person's okay. And again, we're back to what we talk about a lot, which is that's very disrespectful and it's disempowering for the other person. And I, I also wanna add that if you're in a partner relationship, then if that person is sinking the ship, you're trying to make sure that you're bailing. So you're bailing while that other person is like drowning or trying to sink you both. And so for your own survival, you're trying to take care of this person so that you don't sink as well. So it's very confusing and I really understand that, but that's one of the biggest reasons to step back so that you can get some perspective and get some air in the space so that you're not just drowning with them. Basically, it's like if you're a lifeguard, you're going to actually assess the situation before you jump in. And in this case, being a lifeguard is not the goal. And a huge aspect of this is you have to notice if you are working harder than the other person, working harder to get them help, working harder to to back them up so that whatever they're not doing, you're doing so that you're taking care of things that need to be taken care of so that everything doesn't fall apart and they're doing less and less and less. That's the asking that I hear you talking about. If you are a loved one of somebody who's using, you have needs and you have a right to ask for your needs to be met and you have a right for you to ask them to step forward into their power rather than their powerlessness. I heard you say something, Kayla, that I wonder how many people in a partner relationship like this have heard. How disrespectful is it to the other person that's sinking the ship to think that they can't or they are incapable 
of learning or adjusting or getting through whatever it is that they're experiencing, that that's not the perception of the person who's trying to do the fixing and the saving and the, their perception is I'm doing something for this person and kind of understanding that actually it may be disrespectful to do that. And that backing away from that piece of it is actually allowing the person to learn about themselves and to be independent and to be able to solve the problem or their problems alone. I don't know. I just find it interesting. Feels like there's such an urgency though. If you're in a relationship that's this bad and we're asking, we're asking the non-affected person to, to take these tiny steps, it feels like it's going to be forever. And there's a mountain of accumulated resentment and hard feelings and frustration behind it. So we're asking a lot out of a person in a relationship. And, and it seems like rather than trying to keep the person with addiction, their loved one from sinking, you may primarily be trying to keep your relationship and your life from sinking because everything's tied up with that person. And so you've got the economics of it. We worked with a, a woman recently and she, she was amazing. And she's, you, you'd find the exchange on our site, alliesinrecovery.net, but she's a social worker. So she would write these long, extremely detailed and clear observations of her partner who had agreed he had an addiction, had gone off to treatment, was just super thrilled to find the world of recovery only for COVID to shut everything down bring them back together, stuck in the house day in, day out. He ends up now addicted to his ADD medication and she's trying to figure out what she's seeing. So we have back and forth, back and forth, helping her to both understand or at least ask the next right question of the situation, keep herself safe, have herself a life. She has a chronic medical condition that also demands that she stays non-stressed and calm. Very difficult situation, but, um, you know, with our help, I think she managed to move him to his parents, which bought her the house and the calmness and the, and the secure boundary that she did not have. He acted more responsibly at his parents than he did at her house. It became clear it was the ADD medication. She by then was completely fed up because he wasn't willing to do anything. And so eventually they separated and she thanked us, but we helped her navigate and she helped herself and him navigate to a better place. The relationship didn't last because of it or at the last writing, it, it, she had separated, but both of them learned a lot and she maintained herself and her health more or less through it. So it was an interesting journey with her. Well, I think that that's something that we all have to think about is it's so easy to get your life subsumed by somebody else's who seems like a higher need. Like if somebody's using drugs and caught up in that whole lifestyle, it feels like they're high need. And that dynamic happens a lot. Like, oh, I'm OK. I'm strong. I can handle things. And if you look at most of the people who are on our site, that's what they're doing They're, As I like to call them, the superheroes, the, no matter how bad things are, they continue to function. They take care of business. They take care of everything. 
And I often think to myself, what's that experience like for the other person where it doesn't matter what they do, life continues on without them. Things continue to get taken care of and paid for without them. And if you have any kind of addictive behavior, there's a good chance that you have some mental health issues or that you're in some kind of shame spiral. And if you're already feeling shame and you feel like you have nothing to contribute, that's just going to feed your sense of low self-esteem and shame and hopelessness. And it, it's not a good dynamic. And I feel like we don't step forward. And this goes back to what you're saying, Lori, and respectfully ask that person to step forward for us because we want and this is huge. OK, thank you for triggering this for me that we walk around looking like we don't have any needs. Okay, maybe we're hysterical, maybe we're obnoxious, maybe we're annoying and nagging, but when it comes to having vulnerability and asking for help and needing something from somebody else, that's what what goes off the table quickly. And because we're functioning and we're in our superhero, I'll take care of that, I'll do this, I could help you, I could get this taken care of. Instead of, wait, whoa, 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 wait a second, I'm exhausted. I have nothing left. I feel like I can't get up right now and do anything. Can you please help me? And that's one of the dynamics that can possibly change the whole situation if you start to ask. It might not, but I think in terms of health, it's a good balancing act as opposed to you take care of everything and then you expect less and less and less of the other person. I also think people don't realize that you can start off really small with asking for things you can and move yourself into bigger and, you know, larger asks. I mean, you can start off with something as simple as simple as, you know, I'm running late getting home from work. Do you think you could get dinner started? I'm really hungry and I'm going to be ravenous when I get home. Could you get dinner started? And you might get a no, but that just gives you more information about decisions you can make in the future for yourself. I don't know. I think helping that love relationship, the partner, the spouse, helping the unaffected person. Is that how you termed it, Dominique? Yeah. To understand that it's OK to go ahead and start asking for things for your own needs, asking the other person to fulfill certain things, I think is very empowering. There's another point to that, Lori, which is that we often are focused on, you know, you need to stop doing drugs. You need to stop drinking. You need to drink less. But what happens is if you're asking for somebody to do something for you, like start the dinner or pick up a few things from the grocery store or unload the dishwasher, that's a different conversation. OK, because then you get to say, I asked you these things and you were not willing or able to do that. And so What's this relationship about if you can't if you can't respond to me? And that completely changes the discussion from you're drinking too much or you're you know, you're doing drugs. You need to stop. It really goes back to the relationship dynamics, which is I'm not getting my needs met. And you take the pressure off of the drug and alcohol conversation, which I think is very valuable. I suspect that what happens, too, is that the unaffected person, the 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 thoughts may be something like, 
well, how can I ask them? I, I'm trying not to ask too much of them so that they can focus on reducing their use. I bet you I'd love to hear from um, some of our listeners, maybe people that are in this type of a relationship. But what are your thoughts? What are you thinking? And I have a funny feeling that we would hear something like that, that they would be like, well, I'm trying to relieve the pressure so that they can focus on not using or not drinking or recovery or I don't want to add too much pressure because they went out and they got a job. And that's that tiptoeing around. I don't want to ask too much. I want to let them focus on that. So I'm going to take care of absolutely everything else. And actually, like you said previously, Kayla, boy, that's kind of disrespectful. It's it's kind of like saying the other person is incompetent. Well, and if you think about our new model of recovery, which is about function and not necessarily abstinence, it's my new way of thinking of it. Then if you're thinking about recovery as function and you're not asking the person for function, then what favor are you doing? It's like, if I'm going to ask, I'm not going to ask you to like do some like, okay, I need you to paint that room when you're not working. If I ask you to unload the dishwasher and those of us who have adolescents know that this apparently is a very big ask because everything else is much more important. But if you look at what people are doing, they're doing mostly nothing. <laughs> they're, you know, they're on their phones, they're playing video games, whatever. Even if you work, when you come home, you still have to function. It's not that I'm going to ask you to do three hours worth of work. But the five minutes that it takes to unload the dishwasher is a caring behavior for me. And, and that's a huge relational tool is to ask for caring behaviors. And here's the interesting thing about caring behaviors is what somebody else does for you is not necessarily perceived by you as a caring behavior. So for me, I'm one of those people before I go on vacation, I have to have the laundry done. And I think of that as a caring behavior to everybody. It's like, oh, we're going to we're going to come back. We're only coming back with the laundry from the vacation. And I started to realize that the rest of my family did not perceive this as a caring behavior. And so I started to realize, oh, I'm doing this for myself. <laughs> but but so what's caring? Caring is I need to ask what's a caring behavior for that other person. And relationships happen through behavior. And as I like to say to people, when people use the word love, I believe love is not only a feeling, but it is a behavior. So you're asking for behavior and the more specific, the more manageable, the more time limited and the more measurable that behavior is, the more you know that something's happening. You know, it's interesting, Kayla, you should ask my rest participants. We talk about narrowing it down, make it manageable, make it measurable. So small little baby steps so you can see it, measure it, and it's manageable for both you and your loved one. Oftentimes we make it this big thing, really difficult to manage and measure. And personally, I think when you make it big in, in general, everybody's being set up to fail. It's unattainable. It's unattainable. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why if it's smaller and time limited, limited and measurable, like unloading the dishwasher, which doesn't get any, you know, apparently that's my pet thing. Then you can acknowledge it when it happens. Okay. And so when people come into me and say, I don't feel cared about, I say to them, 
what are the things the other person could do that will allow you to feel cared about and make a whole list of them. But then you must acknowledge them because what you acknowledge, what you notice, what you point out gets bigger. It's a reinforcer as opposed to it happens and you don't say anything. Because if you don't say anything, expect it never to happen again, because then you're in the Well, why should I bother? You didn't even notice. Let's do this, too, for listeners, because this idea actually Dominique had to help me with this when we on the website, when we talked about communication and Dominique, I'm you probably don't remember this, but short and specific. Now, what short and specific means to me is small baby steps manageable, measurable. And so that short and specific, like helping people to understand what's general and what's big is something like, you never help me out around the house. Very general. What what the heck does that mean? And, you know, my loved one might think, well, what are you talking about? I wipe the tiles down when I get out of the shower and I put my laundry in the laundry basket. I help out. Right. And you're thinking, well, I need someone to mow the lawn and you never mow the lawn or take the garbage out. So making sure that you're that you're making it very, very narrow with what it is that you're asking for and very specific. And I think, Dominique, you had termed it this way. This is the who, what's, where's, when's and why's of it. So. What I'm asking is that Thursday nights, you make sure that the garbage ends up out on the corner for the garbage truck to pick it up in the morning. Nice and specific. One act, it's short, it's specific. It tells you exactly what I'm asking you to do. Easily manageable, right, for both of you. And it's very easy to see when it actually happens and to be able to do exactly what Kayla was talking about, reinforcing, oh, Oh my gosh, thank you. You got the garbage out this week. So helpful. And then that's it. In Imago um, relationship therapy, we have what's called a behavior change request. And so what happens with the behavior change request is that we're specific, even if if it's a relational issue. So for example, if I feel like I'm being ignored by you and my complaint is that when I walk in, you don't look up and you don't say hello or anything like that. Instead of complaining about that, What I'm going to ask for is when I walk through the door, when I come in, what I would like you to do, and that's how you're asking it, what I would like from you is that you look up (laughs) and you say, oh, hi, it's good to see you come here. Let me give you a hug. And I think people say, well, if I ask for that, then it doesn't really count when they give it to me. And I'm like, oh my God, it is the complete opposite. It's when you ask for something, it fits the need. It's it's what I call the homeopathic fix. It's this tiny little perfect solution for you. So you're setting the person up to succeed as opposed to fail. Because what if, you know, you walk in and they go, hi, and that doesn't do it for you. It's like, you want them to look up, look at you, smile at you, whatever. And and it could be that once they do it, you're like, well, I, that didn't really feel good. So you start to think, what was it about that? That didn't feel good. And you get to say, you did a great job. And I realized I need you to do this one other thing, which is to put your arms out and say, come here so I could give you a hug. Can I say that I've, I've been married to someone for 20 years who still cannot look up and give me a hug when, when I walk through the door. So I've tried it every which way you guys are suggesting. But in the end, what I found to get what I need from that is to go up to him when I walk through the door, pull his head up, have him look me in the eyes. I smile. I scrunch his shoulders. I say, hey, it's good to see you. Yeah. 
And then he responds. And then he responds, but he never remembers to do it on his own. And so I'm just saying that for him, it's not just a learning prop thing or whatever it is that he has. <laughs> you know, it's he, he's so engrossed in whatever he's doing. He has this big mind and he's all in one way. And he literally doesn't, it doesn't compute that I've walked through the door. And so I've learned that for him, this is the best I'm going to get. Or I'm going to get resentful that he didn't look up because he will never look up. You know, let me ask you this, too. Um, and I'm asking both Dominique and Kayla this question. I hear this frequently. I hear he or she should just know. <laughs> right. And I'm like, why? No, don't assume that someone knows. Why should they just know? OK, so here's how I like to put it. We want to be with mind readers, except we don't really want them to read our minds. I'm like, if somebody was in my mind, I'd be, they would be running for the hills. So I don't want anybody reading my mind. I want, I want somebody who's responsive. Okay. So it's not about mind reading the most overrated thing. Cause you know, I, I don't believe people who read minds. I, I had this, this adolescent girl come in and she's like, I'm really, I could read people's minds. I'm like, okay, what am I thinking? And she was completely wrong. I'm like, no. So you don't want to, mind reading is not a, a positive characteristic. It's kind of like you have too much information and you don't want to know. So it's also a distortion, right? It's yeah. a distortion of your thinking. If you if you can either predict or guess and think you're right as to what that person is thinking. You're moving in this whole distorted world where you're not getting feedback. You're not getting the truth. You're getting what you perceive to be going on. It's bad news. And it's also expecting them to read your mind. That That's what it says to me that, oh, they should just know says, Oh, I'm expecting them to be able to read my mind and what my my needs and my expectations are. And I'm like, well, why do you think that they can do that? Why would you ever expect someone else to be able to read your mind? We're all different. We're all different. Right. And so and I found myself, you know, like my partner was asking me for things and she asked me like three times. The fourth time she got really mad, which apparently was what I needed for it to get through. And then I became obsessed with like, how do I remember this? Because I wrote it in my book, you know, when I go home, I have to do this. And it was very helpful for her to get mad at me because it actually pierced my, I don't get this thing. Cause what, what's not important to us doesn't register. It's exactly like what Dominique was saying. If you walk over to your husband and have a, a big, conversation about the world and the concepts he's thinking about. He will be so focused on on that conversation. You will feel him completely because that's him. But when it comes to looking up and giving you a hug, that's not his way. So how do we get our own needs met? And I feel like that's the OK, let's bring it back to the beginning, which is our job as as loved ones is to get our own needs met. OK, so number one, and I guess this is the summary. Number one, we need to figure out what our needs are, which is often thrown out the table when there's somebody who's high need, high crisis. I, what I need doesn't matter. I just have to hold everything together and I'm in survival mode. That's not helpful. You have to be able to figure out what your wants and needs are figure out what you're going to do to meet your own wants and needs, and then engage with the person in the way by asking them for their help in a very specific, measurable way 
so that if they do do it, you get to reinforce it, but also that you need to step back from being the caregiver of them or the enabler of their behavior so that they have the space to actually have the tension that's needed to even want to change. And if you're asking for things that they can't give you in a reasonable way, you need to be reasonable, then you need to be looking at the relationship and letting them know that your needs are not getting met and you get to discuss that with them. It's like, okay, so why are we doing this if what I need doesn't matter to you? Why are we in this relationship if my needs don't matter? And it sounds to me like they would be more actually more positive results if the focus turns to the relationship versus the crisis and the addiction. Yes. Great topic, as always, ladies. And thank you for that summary, Kayla. And we will be back again next week with a new topic. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.